Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb, and this is the weekly sermon from Gateway Community Church. We're excited to be able to share inspiring and meaningful messages to help you grow in Christ. To learn more about our ministry, please visit us at gatewaycrc.org. Now let's dive into God's Word together with this week's message. So we have finally arrived after a couple of months at Exodus 7, which is the story of the 10 plagues. For the last couple of months, we've looked at the first six chapters, which has outlined for us the story of redemption, that God is preparing Moses to deliver God's people out of their bondage, out of their slavery, so that they can enter into the promised land. And finally, we get to this absolutely critical passage, the plagues. And there's just so much that I want to share with you this morning that I decided I'm, I'm going to give you my outline right at the beginning so that those of you who are type A, you know where I'm going. You don't have to worry about it. And we'll get there. But here are the three things I want you to see. Through the plagues, we're going to see three things. Number one, that God in his mercy is exposing our false hopes that we might turn and worship him. That's the foundation of everything we're going to look at today and, Lord willing, next week. And number two, that through the ten plagues, the Lord is bringing about his just judgment in the world, and that continues to today. And then number three, through the plagues, God brings salvation to all who believe in him. So that's where we're going. That's my outline. And so one of the things that I think we tend to believe in, and I would say this is true of, of every progressive generation, is that we're kind of on this upward trajectory uh, away from like our placebos and crutches, like spirituality and religion. We don't need those things anymore because we're becoming increasingly independent. We are in control over our own lives. And what the story is intending to reveal to us is that control is an illusion. Control is an illusion. And now I'm not saying that we don't have better things, like we have cars that drive really fast, we have spaceships that go up into space, we have greater levels of technology, greater medicine, all those things are true, and we should champion those things. But last I checked, and I've shared this with you before, the latest Pew research indicates that we are the most anxious generation in human history. We take more medicine to sleep than any generation previously. We're more afraid than any generation previously. And last I checked, outside of the person of Jesus, death has a 100% success rate. We are no more in control over our lives than any previous generation. And so I want to show you how this plays out in our story today because I think it has profound implications for our life today. So if you got your Bible, I know you're at Exodus 7, but look at Exodus 6, verses 6 and 7. These are the words of God. He shares this with Moses, and he says, Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. Now notice how many times God says, I will. And I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, 
I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians and I will bring you out to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as possession. I am the Lord. So according to our Jewish friends, according to Jewish Midrash, we just read what they refer to as the four cups of wine. Every single time they rehearse the Seder Passover meal up to this day, they have four cups of wine to remember the covenant promises and the deliverance of God's people based on this story that starts in Exodus chapter 7. So let me rehearse them for you. The first cup is when God says in verse 6, I will bring you out. And that is a geographical liberation. And then in the same verse, we see him say, and I will free you, which is the second cup, and that is a physical liberation. They're no longer in bondage. The shackles have fallen off. And the third cup is verse 7, when God says, and I will redeem you. This is a jurisprudential language. This is legal language. When he says, I will redeem you, what he is showing is a legal liberation. These are the first three cups. So they're no longer enslaved to Pharaoh. They are set free. These are the three cups that every person on the planet wants to drink. All of us want to drink these three cups. Like, who in their right mind doesn't want a sort of physical, legal, and geographical liberation? Like, this, this is the motif of our culture, isn't it? Break free. Be your own man. Be your own woman. You are the master of your soul. Pull up your bootstraps. You're in control. We all want this. But there's actually two more cups, and we're going to look at one today and another one next week. But the fourth cup that we find is the end of verse 7, in which God says this, I will take you as my own people. Do you see that? I will take you as my own people. That is the fourth cup, which is spiritual liberation. So this is the promise that God makes to Israel. He says, I will take you under my own protection, under my own tutelage. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will take care of you. And what I mean to propose to you is then and now, we want the first three cups, but we don't want the fourth. We don't want the fourth. We don't want this sort of liberation only to be underneath someone else. So let me, let me just try to make this even more clear. I want us to go all the way back to Exodus chapter 1, and I want to show you something truly fascinating that I think helps make this point. Exodus 1, verses 13 and 14. Let me read this to you. So the Egyptians ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now, every single underline that you see here, every single yellow element that you see on the screen is the same Hebrew word. It is the word avodah. Say it with me. Avodah. That is the word for work, 
for service or for slavery, it's all the same word. And it actually occurs two more times in the subsequent verses. And as you learned in our Book of Revelation series, anytime there is a sevenfold repetition of anything, you need to stop because something has just been fulfilled in your hearing. So what's the plain main thing? It's that the people of Israel, they're not just enslaved, they're totally enslaved. They are completely enslaved. And there's nothing that they can do about it. And as we look at this text and we see it fulfilled in the person of Jesus, that's our story too. Outside of the person and the work of Jesus, we are totally enslaved and there's nothing that we can do about it. But here's where it gets really, really interesting. By the time we get to Exodus chapter 3, we hear God saying this. This is chapter 3, verse 12. And God said to Moses, When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship, circle, highlight, underline, God on this mountain. And then again, Exodus 4.22. This is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son, and as I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. Now, there's something that English readers just missed, but the original Hebrew readers, it would have smacked them in the face. Do you know what the Hebrew word is for worship? Do any of you have a guess? Avodah. It's the same word. The word for service. The word for slavery. The word for work. The word for worship. So what's the point? Is God saying, I'm going to take you under the yoke of Pharaoh, under the slavery of Pharaoh, so that you can just be my slaves? <laughs> is, is that the point that God is making? No, no, it's, it's much, much deeper than that. See, the ten plagues that we are about to look at are not only intended to punish Pharaoh and the Egyptians for their mistreatment of the people of Israel. And it's not only intended to be some sort of gladiator match to prove that God is more powerful than all of their false gods who have mouths but do not speak, eyes but cannot see, feet but who do not move. It is those things, but it's also meant to point us to a foundational truth about the nature of avodah. And I put it this way in your note sheet. Here's the key principle That's going to help you understand everything else that we're going to look at today. Freedom without the Lord is a desert. Freedom without the Lord is a desert. So yeah, you you can leave Egypt. Go grab your freedom. Go get it. You're the master over your soul. But if you leave Egypt, all you're going to find is a desert, a barren wasteland, and it's going to kill you. And so what God is intending to reveal to us, which I've shared with you before, is everyone worships something. The only question we have left to ask is, what am I worshiping? What am I ascribing worth to? What am I working for? What am I indebted to? What what am I a slave to? What am I serving? All the same word. What do you avodah? Because you can say, I want all the geographical liberation, the legal liberation, the physical liberation. I want all of that in spades, but I don't want the fourth cup. I don't want the spiritual liberation. I don't need God. Well, a life without God is a desert. And that is the point of the story. To help us see 
that even if Israel could have that freedom and go out into the wilderness, they're not truly free. Not until they experience the full measure of who God is. And I think we just don't believe that. Not fully. Not in our culture today. So Pharaoh, he asks a really interesting question that I think is a question that every generation asks. He says this in Exodus 5 verse 2. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? What a question. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? I think this is a very modern question, isn't it? It's the same question that we're asking today. Now, remember, I think it's important to note that uh, the Egyptians lived in what we would call a pluralistic culture. So for the, Hebrew, for the Hebrews to have a God that they worshipped, who they said talked with him, that's not a problem. They're not worried about that. Because one thing that we know through the study of historians is that Egyptians had at least 1,500 gods. Some historians say upwards of 2,000 gods that they worshipped. So for the Hebrews to say, we just want to add one more, they're like, sure, go for it. That's not a problem for us. And the same thing goes for us today. The latest Pew research indicates that 8% of Canadians uh, say they're atheistic, but 92% say they believe in a god or gods. 50% are Protestant or Catholic, and then another 42% are from other various religions, and only 8% atheistic. So again, in our culture today, our, our mantra is coexist right? You can have your God, you'll have your God, like everything's okay. We can all just worship our own gods. But the offense here, according to Pharaoh, was that God had some sort of authority over him. That's the pinch point. You can worship your God, I can worship my God. Just don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me that God has some sort of lordship over my life. And that is where the story starts here, and I think it's where the story starts for us. And so here's the human heart, then and now. We all want the liberation that God brings without any of the worship. We all want the liberation that God brings without any of the avodah. Give me the three cups. I don't want the fourth. Give me the liberation. Give me the freedom so I can be my own man, the master of my soul. Just don't tell me what to do. And if there's one thing that we cannot tolerate today, it's some deity imposing its will upon our freedoms and our desires. We can tolerate a God who's a creator. That's fine. Just don't tell me what to do. Don't have any authority over my life. Don't tell me how to live my life in the bedroom. Don't tell me how to live my life with my pocketbook. Don't infringe upon my creature comforts. Don't take the steering wheel of my life. Don't tell me what to do. And if you can agree with me on that, then everything's going to be great. Everything's going to be fine. So we enter into some sort of wink-wink, nudge-nudge relationship with God, but we discover very quickly God doesn't play those sorts of games with his creatures. He's not going to play that game with you. He is sovereign over all things. He is the creator of the universe, and he wants a relationship with you. And he will come from heaven to earth to prove that to you. This is the story of redemption. You know, in preparation for this series, I was reading a book from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs on his book of Exodus, 
and he obviously doesn't see all of this fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus, but he makes a very astute observation. I want to I read it to you. He says this. The oldest and most tragic phenomenon in history is that empires eventually decline and disappear. Freedom becomes individualism. Does this sound familiar? Each doing what is right in their own eyes. That's Joshua chapter 6. Individualism becomes chaos. Chaos becomes the search for order. And the search for order becomes a new sort of tyranny imposing its will by the use of force. So look right at me. This right here is the inevitable conclusion of a life without Jesus. Of a life without Christ. If we are not connected to the vine, if we don't drink the fourth cup of salvation, then we can have our freedom, but really it's still bondage. We're still out in the wilderness, and the plagues intend to communicate that story to us more fully. So here's what the plagues are doing, both then and now. I want to give you four things just for us to see in our minds what the plagues are intending to communicate to us. The first three, I think, are self-evident. They get a lot of press. We talk about them a lot, but I think the fourth one is the most significant. So here they are. Number one, they're not only intended to punish Pharaoh for the mistreatment of the people of Israel, though it was, Uh, They're not only to liberate Israel from the yoke of Pharaoh so that they can go to a physical liberation into the land of promise, though it was. They're not only to showcase God's power over the false idols and false gods that they worshipped and to prove that he is the one true God, though it is. I think the most significant element of the story that it is trying to communicate to us both then and now is this. A huge part of these plagues is for us to see that God is sovereign over all of his creation and that we are putting our hope in worshiping the wrong stuff so that we might turn and worship him. Give our avodah over to God. This is an act of mercy that we might see God for who he truly is. And so that's the first point that I shared with you already. God in his mercy exposes our false hopes that we might turn and worship him. There is a deep sense in which these plagues are actually an act of mercy. They're an act of mercy because we're heading in the wrong direction and at the end of that wrong direction, there's a cliff And so God is desperately seeking to say, you're going in the wrong direction. Turn around, repent, make a 180-degree U-turn. Come and follow me, and this is what will give you life. The things that you're placing your hope in, they won't give you life. They won't give you life. They cannot sustain your hope. They were not intended to do that. Come and follow me. Come and worship me. So God, in his mercy, is answering that question. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? And I think credit to Pharaoh, this is a critical question that we need to ask ourselves. Why is the Lord worthy of my worship? And as as I look out here and I anticipate people who are watching online, I think there are many of us who are asking this exact question. Every generation needs to ask this question. I think of the Apostle Paul when, when he says, Um, If Christ was not raised, then we most of all are to be pitied. Why? Because this is just a joke and you're all wasting your time. You're wasting your time. I mean, 
go home. Enjoy your life. Go boating. Go fishing. Do, do something else that's more worthwhile. But if he is the Lord of the universe, then there's nothing better that we can do. And so I think we have to ask ourselves that question. Who is the Lord that he is worthy of my worship, that I should obey his voice? And God gives us his answer. Exodus 7, verses 17, uh, 14 to 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river. Confront him on the bank of the Nile. I think this is fascinating because he meets with a Pharaoh at the Nile, the very place in which he was supposed to be thrown to his death. And here he is as a full-grown adult man confronting Pharaoh at the same place. Awesome, I love that. And take in your hand the staff which was changed into a snake, indicating the authority of God, which we've talked about in the past. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to you to say to you, let my people go so that they may, what's the word? Worship. And what's the Hebrew word for worship? Avodah. So that they may avodah me in the wilderness. But until now, you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. Just sidebar here really quickly. See that God gives a forewarning in this first plague. Take note of that. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, take your staff... Stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in vessels of wood and stone. That's fascinating. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died. And the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink the water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. So I shared with you uh, all the way back in week one of the series that what made Egypt the breadbasket of the known world, the superpower of the ancient world, was the Nile River. The Nile River was life, and life was the Nile River. And so I have a picture here. This is an aerial view of the Nile between modern-day uh, Cairo and Luxor. And as you look at this picture, you can see quite vividly— can we put that back? Oh, there it is. Um, you can see quite vividly that anything that is remotely close to the Nile is lush and green. And then what is beyond it? Death. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? And so remember that earlier point that I gave to you. You can have your freedom. Take those first three cups. Get out of Egypt. Go take your freedom. The wilderness is waiting for you. See, Scripture is filled with pictures to help us understand more deeply what God is intending to communicate to us. We see it even in the way the geography works out in Egypt. So Egyptians in the ancient world would pray to their gods to bring forth what they called inundation. 
So in its season, as they prayed, the waters of the Nile would swell, and then they would seep out over the banks, and little fingers would come down to the valley below, and not only with water, but with precious silt to further fertilize their crops. And this singular feature made an otherwise barren wasteland into a cornucopia, into a beautiful breadbasket of the ancient world. And I find that so fascinating. And all their power and all their wealth was caught up in the Nile. And the primary Egyptian god of the Nile was the goddess Happy. I got a picture for you. Here's the goddess Happy. And she was worshipped as the source of fertility and of fruitfulness. Now, not to belabor this point, I, I really question if I should share this with you, but I, th I think I'm going to try and thread a needle here. If you know, you know. If you don't, you don't. So uh, I just want to show you a picture. Here's a satellite image of the Nile Delta, if we can show that. And you'll see there, uh, right at the beginning of the Delta is Cairo. And that is where the Egyptians are living during this story. So you, again, you have to think about the pictures. What are the Egyptians thinking about when the Nile River turns into blood? The Nile Delta is shaped like a V. And then the Nile itself looks like a phallus. And then you have water that comes out. And there is seed, and life is born. So that's the image. They're not just thinking about fertility, they're thinking about conception. They're thinking about birth. And this is how it happens. As these two things converge, there is life. And the, and the Egyptian goddess Happy, she is the one who conceives life for us. And if we put our trust in her, then we will have life. We will have fertility. We will have children. We will have nourished crops. That is what happy brings. And it's not lost on me that her name is happy. I just think that's ironic. So there's that. So what is God doing when he turns the Nile River into blood? What's the plain main thing? What is Egypt thinking about as they understand the metaphors and they think about those things every single year as they worship the goddess happy? They, they know how babies are born. They're thinking about conception. And the image here is the Nile is turned into blood. And again, I'm, I'm not just saying this for shock and awe. I want you to see the image. The image is miscarriage. There is death. There is destruction. And the question is why? Why, why, why? And I think we're going to see the reason why God does this in the second plague, as these two come together to reveal what God has intended to communicate. So just hang on to that, and we're going to see it really soon. So, in his mercy, God is revealing to Egypt that they are worshiping what is false, and they have put their hope in the sand. They have put their hope in something that is false, and it will not reach the true desires of their heart because they were not intended to. Because... Fullness of life is only found in Jesus Christ. That's the message. And that's what Jesus comes to fulfill. And then we see it most clearly when, when Jesus stretches out his hands on the cross and the blood pours down to the earth below and to the valleys beneath. And all who believe 
that Jesus Christ is Lord will be saved. In this first plague, Jesus is the fulfillment of that story. So, again, I'm, I'm not saying that an unbeliever can't enjoy life. Indeed, you can. I think you can enjoy a good steak. I think you can enjoy a good bourbon. I think you can enjoy all the amenities that life has to offer. So maybe, just maybe, the best way to think about what God is saying here, that a life without Christ ultimately leads to death, is to think about Egyptian mythology. Now, credit to the Egyptians. They didn't have the Bible, right? This is the story of Exodus, the second book of your Bible. Genesis isn't written yet. None of Scripture is written. So the Egyptians have nothing but God's general revelation. All they have is creation. And credit to them, when they look at creation, they see God everywhere. They look at the sun, they see God. They look at the Nile River, they see God. They look at the incredible conception of children, they see God. They see a flower in bloom, they see God. They see fields in their harvest, God. So the problem isn't that they're not religious. No, indeed they are. They're very religious. The problem is they've ascribed the status of God to his created things and not to him. And if you've been hanging out listening to my preaching, what do I give as the basic definition of idolatry? When you take a good thing, you make it a God thing, and on account of that, it becomes a broken, tainted, and terrible thing. So we're just like the Egyptians. I, I, I bet in, in a room like this, there are precisely zero people who have a little shrine of the Egyptian goddess happy, and you know, she's on your desk, and you burn sage at night, and you worship her. You're probably not doing that, but you don't have to. All you need to do is avodah, created things rather than God. And, and we're in the same boat. Who among us doesn't get caught up in ascribing worth and giving glory over to created things, even good things, our marriages, our kids, our work, our status, our relationships. We can take these created things that God has made good, make them ultimate in our life, and they become tainted, broken, and treacherous things for our souls. And so God loves us enough that in his mercy, he wants you to see this so that you might turn and worship him. God exposes the lie. He shows us even the very best things that this world has to offer will not satisfy your soul. They were never intended to do that. So let me, let me ask you a question. Is it possible that there are times in your life in which God allows temporary afflictions to befall you to help you see that you are running in the wrong direction. Is that possible? Is it possible, for those of you who are Christians, I'll just speak to you for a moment, is it possible, dear Christian, that God cares far more deeply about your eternity than your temporary pleasures here on this earth? I think one of the challenges for us in the West is every single time we experience pain or heartache, we flee from it. It's anathema to Westerners. We want health, wealth, and happiness. We want creature comforts. We aspire to make sure that our life is in control, and God is trying to say, listen to me. 
The only thing that will bring you life is a relationship with me. Don't take the stuff that I have made and ascribe to it the worthiness of only what I am worthy of receiving from you. Hope and life and worship. And he loves us enough to identify those things so that we might come back to him. God in his mercy reveals what we are chasing after. Now look at verse 22. It's amazing where this goes next. 7, verse 22. But the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts. What? They can do the same things? Oh, that, that's strange. Does it make you feel uncomfortable? Weird. Like, I thought only God could do miracles. What, what's going on? We'll see in just a second what's going on there. And Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace. He did not take even this to heart. Not even the whole Nile River and even wooden baskets that are not associated with the Nile. They're turned into blood too. He won't take any of that to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water of the Nile. So this is really interesting. Scripture says that magicians could perform the same acts. We ask how, why. That will become clear in just a second. Hang on to that. So the great irony in all of this is that the Egyptian magicians, in performing these acts, they're not making things better, they're making things worse. The end result is more blood. It's like, yay, we did the same thing. You're killing your people. More blood. But as soon as Pharaoh saw the magicians duplicating the plagues, his heart was hardened, and then what happens? It says that he dug a ditch along the Nile. What's, what's all that about? Well, here's the plain main thing. Here's, here's the practical implication for our lives today. When we get exposed by God for chasing after the wrong things, worshiping the wrong things, aspiring to get the wrong things, God in his mercy will lay us bare, exposing us to see with our own eyes that that will not bring true fulfillment for your soul. And in that moment, the desire is repentance, right? But then, tragically, what happens? Rather than turn toward God in submission and repentance, what do we do? We dig a ditch. We find our own way. Say, yeah, you know, that's a pretty clear sign that that God is not very happy with my behavior. The whole Nile is turned into blood. Could you imagine the Fraser River? 100% of it turned into blood. We're like, that's a sign. I'll just dig a ditch. I'll just figure it out find my own way, be the master of my soul, pull up my bootstraps, I'll be able to take care of this. And so we even mock the challenges of God. God is trying to lead us to repentance, and we say, I don't want anything to do with that. It gets worse. Look at Exodus chapter 8, verse 1. Seven days passed, oh, seven That's the number of completion. Seven days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord says. Let my people go so that they may worship Avodah, me. If you refuse to let them go, I will send you a plague of frogs on your whole country. Again, for the second time, 
He has told them in advance what is about to happen. Take note of that. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace and into your bedroom and onto your bed, onto the houses of your officials, onto your people, into your ovens and kneading troughs. The frogs will come up on you and the people and your officials. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the streams and canals and ponds and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came out and covered the land. But the magicians did the same things by their secret arts. They also made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, pray to the Lord that the frogs um, will take the frogs away from me and my people, and I will let your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, I leave to you the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people that you and your houses may be rid of the frogs, except for those that remain in the Nile. Tomorrow, Pharaoh said. Moses replied, it will be as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs will leave you and your houses and your officials and your people and will only remain in the Nile. After Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh, Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs that he had brought on Pharaoh, and the Lord did what Moses asked. The frogs died in the houses, in the courtyards, and in the fields. They were piled into heaps, and the land reeked of them. But when Pharaoh saw there was relief, circle, highlight, underline, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. So what is happening with the frogs is another Egyptian god named Heket. Now here's a, a picture of the Egyptian goddess Heket. And she was believed to attend all births as a midwife. And as you can see, she's depicted as a woman with the head of a frog. And hopefully by now, you're thinking to yourself, hey, that sounds really familiar. Where, where did I hear about midwives and the Nile and blood and children? Oh, yeah. Isn't that how the book of Exodus began? When Pharaoh issued a decree to murder all Hebrew children and for midwives to do the deed of murdering these children? And then once they are murdered, where do they go? Where do they throw them? into the Nile. And so we can see right here that these first two plagues are an indictment against Pharaoh and the Egyptians for their mistreatment of the people of Israel and their slaughtering of Hebrew children. So again, as, as English readers were like, frogs, that's interesting. But the, the Egyptians, they would get the imagery. They would understand it immediately using both happy and heket as the first two plagues, that is what God is communicating most clearly. And again, the picture of the Nile turning into blood is God's indictment against the evil of the Egyptians. That's what he's revealing to us, a miscarriage of justice. And so here's the second point. Through the ten plagues, the Lord brings about his just judgment. God detests evil. God detests evil. And so what does it mean for us today? 
Well, it means for us that God in his mercy is revealing that the only fruit that will last is fruit that is born out of repentance and obedience and submission to the Lordship of Christ. That's what will bring forth true fruit in our lives. Look again at verse 15. I find this so fascinating. Verse 15 says, But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. So let me explain how this, ex- this happens today. You know, as I've shared with you already, a lot of times, uh, things that wake us up to deeper realities is our own suffering, right? The pain that we experience, the trauma that we might experience, And though not always, I hope you hear me, there's some nuance in this, not always and perhaps most often not, but at times, these are often used by God to bring about deeper spiritual realities that are alive in our hearts that he wants us to see. And so when things are going well, we're kind of like that country song in reverse, right? You got your wife back, your dog back, your job back, your health back, your tractor back. And like, what what do I need God for? Everything's going awesomely. But then life hits you in the face, something goes wrong, and you once again, you realize that control is an illusion. And we cry out to God and say, God, help me. Please deliver me from this bondage. Please draw near to me. Please help me in the sickness or my loved one who is sick or the situation of my life or the the loss of my job. And we cry out to him, just like Pharaoh did. But then here's the tragic part. When we see respite from our pain, how long does it take for us to forget about our desperate need for God? Or to even recognize that he is the one who delivered us from it. And all of a sudden, we're all the way back to, I'm the captain of my soul. It's like someone comes up to you and they're like, man, like, how how did you get your job back? It's like, I just pulled up my bootstraps. Man, how did did you resolve the tension in your marriage? I just worked really hard. Man, you're no longer sick. What happened? I just ate lots of kale. You know, perfectly fine now. And we forget about the promises of God. We forget that he is the one who has been carrying us through this. And we spit in his face. See, I want to show you that we're not all that different from Pharaoh. Oftentimes when we read scripture, we're like, we're the victim. No, we're not. We are the ones who need to be saved because we are not only enslaved to sin, we're enslaved to our own sin. This is not just something that befalls you. Other people's sin is affecting you. No, the sin nature of our own hearts. And so I want to just lay this before you really humbly. I I hope you have the ears to hear this, to receive this. No one lies to you more than you lie to yourself. No one stabs you in the back more than you stab yourself in the back. And we see this even as we cry out to God and we say, deliver me from this, help me with this. But then when things are going great, we just kind of throw that genie in a bottle off. Once again, we say, I can take it from here. We behave and conduct ourselves in very similar ways to Pharaoh. And then the third and final, chapter 8, verse 16 to 19. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground and throughout the land of Egypt, the dust will become gnats. There's an interesting element. No forewarning. Notice that? First two, forewarning. Third one, not. 
Take note of that. They did this, and when Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust of the ground, gnats came on the people and all the animals, and all the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. But when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. Interesting correlation there, right? They could not. Since the gnats were on people and animals everywhere, the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen, just as the Lord had said. And so as I've shared with you, the first two plagues are symbolic indictments against Egypt and Pharaoh and the slaughtering of Hebrew children and the enslavement of Hebrews as a whole, and we see that with the goddess Happy and Heket. But the third plague is a little bit different. There's a little bit more of a subtle nuance here. The plain main thing of the first two is the idolatry of things, right? The idolatry of your spouse, your kids, your work, your reputation. But the third one is, a rep- is an idolatry of self, an idolatry of self. So here's the third point. God brings salvation to all who believe. And this brings us all the way back to the beginning of Scripture. What is the first story in your Bible of sin? Adam and Eve being tempted by the serpent. And what does the serpent say? He says, God's trying to keep you down. He knows that if you eat of the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. And then we get to the Tower of Babel. And what are they doing? They're saying, well, let's build a name for ourselves. Maybe we can build a big tower as a stairway to heaven, and we can be like God. And what are the Egyptians doing? They are so powerful and so strong and so mighty and so proud. And God reveals the idolatry of self through the smallest of creatures, a gnat. And one interesting element of the story, as I shared with you, the magicians, they can't replicate this act. What's all that about? Well, again, as I've shared with you, there's some humor that we need to see here. Oftentimes when we read scripture, we miss humor because we think the Bible's always so serious. But the humor that we see here is the first two plagues are forewarned and the magicians go out and they think to themselves, okay, how can we replicate this? And they go, look what we did. We replicated the plague in a tiny little micro way. We're just like God. And then again with the second one, there's a forewarning. They say, we can replicate it just like God. The third one, no forewarning. And they say, we can't do it. Therefore, it must be the finger of God. Do you know what that's a lot like for us today? The God of the gaps theology that I think has really plagued the church for the last two decades. Every time we don't understand something, we're like, oh, must be God. But then unfortunately, when our young adults go off to university and they find out there's a scientific explanation for it, they begin to doubt. And so for whatever reason, in church world, we have taken science and we have taken faith as though they're mutually exclusive, as though they're pitted up against each other. And so the great idolatry here, the great irony, is that the only reason they believe it's the finger of God is because they don't know how it works. (laughs) the first one was the finger of God the second one was the finger of God the third one was the finger of God but they're only willing to believe when they throw up their hands and say I don't know how to do it it's still idolatry it's still idolatry 
And so here's what God is trying to do for us today. He's trying to very humbly and mercifully reveal the idolatry of self, either through created things or through this idea that I can just do everything all by myself. What do I need God for? I'm the master of my soul. And so in his mercy, he wants you to turn from that and to realize that it is only in a relationship with him that you can find freedom, that you can find hope, and you can be saved. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? There is a question worth considering. Well, here at Gateway, it is our sincere hope that you would be built up in your faith and in your walk before Christ through this message and every day as you study God's Word. To learn more about our ministry, please visit us at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time for the weekly sermon at Gateway. Gateway.